So let's recap the first interview. Um, so I think the, the big underlying concept that um, we, we outlined was the concept of, of Hume's theory or, or this Humean approach where if we want to see if something's real, if we want to sort of prove that something is real, it's this idea that we have to repeatedly test something, put it in a situation and constantly see that we get the same result. And, and that does have a lot of benefits because if we want to prove that what we're seeing in what we're concluding is real, we want to test it over and over and over again. And that's, that is the concept of that we've taken and we've, we've really sort of pushed when it comes to um, research is that we're going, okay, let's create a situation and then just constantly retest it. And that's the, the basis behind the RCT, the randomized control trial, is taking it and going, okay, let's just create the same situation, create the same setup, just test it over and over again. But what we identified is there's quite a lot of problems with, with taking this approach and then and looking at it and saying, this is how we're going to test if something's happening in reality. And so when we think about RCTs, we think about the way that we, you know, we're taught to practice our, uh, our evidence-based medicine as the RCT is the gold standard. It's telling us what's true. And that's not the case. It's telling us that what it can tell us, it tells us with a high degree of confidence, you know, that 50, 60% of people got better with this treatment. But what it is doing is it's the RCT or the way that we've evolved to, um, to actually use the study is it strips out a lot of context. Um, so we take some, we take a whole bunch of people with a diagnosis, we exclude heaps of people out there. So there's huge exclusion criteria. And this actually is the same for systematic reviews is that we strip out heaps of studies, heaps of things that don't fit the very narrow definition of what we're trying to test. So we've already immediately got this incredibly artificial situation. And we, we, we split people up into groups, brilliant. We're doing all these things that reduce bias and confounding, awesome. But then we take these results and we're generally averaging them. We're not reporting on each individual case because again, if you want a study with significant repeatability, you need to have a lot of people. And so then you can't report on each case individually. And so again, you're losing a lot more context. So by the time that you get this result and you say, well, you know, we tested orthotics for this condition, um, or we tested um, this, tr this treatment, this exercise program, you've got, well, that's the other factor as well. You've got a homogenous treatment. So if you take an orthotic, take an exercise program, we're not actually able to design that personalized for the individual. It has to be homogenous, it has to be the same for everyone. Well, we know these treatments in reality aren't the same. That if someone comes in, they have a condition, you're going to give them an exercise program, you can't give them the same exercise program. It, it does, it defies the, the concept of progressive overload. For example, if you want to get better, you have to overload it. But if you're giving everyone the same, same exercise, you'll be over overloading or overloading too much in some people, underloading too much in others, as an example. So when we've got these RCTs, they're not really telling us the truth. They're telling us a version of the truth. They're telling us this artificial um, process or artificial sort of result of if the world was like this, this is what it is. And that can be incredibly useful, but we have to be aware that if we're just going to use RCTs, if we're just going to read RCTs and say this is the gold standard, that it is an incredibly artificial process. And this is one of the challenges because you know we can't just take an RCT result and say this is this is reality and this is what we're going to practice. 
Uh, but that is kind of what the push is in, in this framework, is if that's the gold standard, then this is what's telling us what's true. And often one of the extensions of that and understandable extensions of that is that we start to tell people that can't be right because the RCT says this. And it's a case of, well, hold on a second, that RCT has already stripped out all these people, stripped out all these other things that could be happening out there that we're not capturing in that study because we're trying to create an artificial um, experiment where everything's the same. Leads us on to this idea of what is bias um, because realistically, when we go to clinical practice, you know, we're dealing with confounding factors. We're dealing with bias. We're dealing with people who aren't going to be ex like in an RCT where they come in and they just have this condition. It's very, all these other things have been excluded. Um, we've definitely seen um, some people report that um, figures like 90% of um, people in chronic or persistent pain, or might even mean 95%, um, don't make it into studies. They, they just don't satisfy the criteria. And it's because when you're in persistent pain, it's so very different um, to just your simple Achilles tendonopathy. There's lots more complexity. It potentially had surgeries, potentially had all these other things. They get missed. Yet they're the ones who come to see us for, for um, their problems. So, you know, the RCT is just not going to capture or a lot of these, these studies that, that try and push out this bias or these confounding factors, I like previous surgeries, I like rheumatological conditions, pain greater than 12 months, um, previous treatment. These are all people that we're gonna see. So this whole idea of gold standard being, gold standard up here is always, I've gotta remove all the bias. The question is, is that doesn't tell us about study design. Just by removing a lot of bias, it doesn't tell us that well, how the study is being constructed. And there's definitely RCTs and systematic reviews that have been designed incredibly poorly um, in the sense of comparing, let's say, rather than comparing against sham, um, they'll compare against another treatment or they'll define the sham as usual treatment. And usual treatment will often involve um, similar things to potentially what's being tested. So again, it's it's providing this sort of skewed results. So we get this result of, oh, X was better than Y, or, or X was not better than Y. But unless you delve into that detail and understand what they're setting up, um, you know, the, the study design just be having less bias doesn't mean it's a good study. And really where we land, where we sort of landed with all of this is go, so what do you do? What studies do you believe what you don't believe? And, and really it landed on this idea of what we, what uh, Roger referred to as evidential pluralism, or really just the fact that there isn't a gold, gold standard um, for one study is always better than the other. There's different study designs that all bring different levels of bias, but also bring different benefits. So an RCT, if we wanted to say, look, paracetamol was the example, we want to see if this drug works at curing headaches and we kind of go great so you know we take line up all the people with headaches we give them all the pill and we see how many people get better and what we see is that overwhelmingly a lot of people do better compared to a sham pill for example um, we can go great that's really helpful that we know in in on a, on a population level if we're going to set a guideline if we're going to set up a standard um, is it likely that that um, paracetamol is going to help for headaches on the balance, yes. So it's good as, as part of a, a general recommendation. But when it comes to then understanding, okay, so who didn't get better? Why didn't they get better? What's the potential mechanism that this worked, how this worked, that 
we can then drill down into to try and understand then, okay, there are different types of headaches. Uh, there are different other factors or contexts. Does the person have the receptor for, for paracetamol? Does it, or does it, is it, this is something else is going on. So it might work in some, in, um, for other pain conditions, just not this person's specific headache. These are all the things that an RCT, a gold standard, suppose a gold standard doesn't answer. And so having a lot of other different studies which will produce, will come in with bias, will come in confounding, but we know that it's there so we can understand that, they can start to study things in a little bit more depth, look at individual cases, measure a lot of other things. And while we can't be as certain of the results, that's the benefit of the repeatability, we understand that to create an environment where we repeat something over and over again, we have to strip out so much context. So it's about sort of starting to understand the study designs and the breadth of different sort of studies that we have and understanding that we always sort of say, you know, to understand um, or practice evidence-based medicine, you need to understand, you know, the lay of the land or, or, or whatever, all the evidence that is out there. It's exactly what we're advocating. We're saying that we need to understand what happens at a, you know, single case study level. There's been a big resurgence in, in single case studies to study individual, um, how we could potentially implement um, different treatment protocols or personalized care we that can be you know a really really good helpful study because it, it mimics clinical practice completely um all the way up through to the rct and we use them all to make sense so if something is if a treatment is uh, no better than sham we at an rct level we can go well hold on a second um is that something that we should be using overall because if it's a well-designed study that actually is using a proper sham, should we be using it? Probably not at an RCT level. That's super helpful. But there might be a whole bunch of people who seem to get better with it still. Well, then that might be worth, why are people getting better despite this um, this placebo treatment? Can we understand the mechanism of what's happening? Can we learn from that and apply it to other things? Yes, the same way as why does a treatment work or exercise programs. We know that exercise, you know, for knee osteoarthritis, you know, low impact and high impact exercises is good for people with severe knee arthritis. You know, exercises as, as little as once a day can produce huge benefit. So we go, well, what, how is exercise exactly working? How can we potentially prescribe it better? These are all sort of things that we can't probably answer at an RCT level. We need to start looking at individuals, individual factors, their lifestyle, what exercises they can and can't do, you know, individually setting up a, like setting up a protocol where we um, test their, their repetition max, and, you know, what, what, how much weight can they lift and then prescribe a program based on that, which will be more personalized. There's all these sorts of things that we can do in these smaller studies that then inform our treatment and really can take into a lot more context. So if someone comes in and says, oh, um, I, I followed, the, um, followed this protocol, I followed this guideline and it didn't work. We can start, we can have all this other information that says, great, for the people where the gold standard hasn't worked, what the RCT cells hasn't worked, you're one of those outliers. We then have somewhere to go. We have, you know, all these case studies of people who potentially haven't um, had, had the, uh, haven't responded or we have case um, series where we look at individuals who um, of who, who following these guidelines and then following through on the outliers and trying to identify well you know why they might not be responding and what we can do about it these are the things that would be incredibly helpful because what we what we um, 
went through really at the at the end of the interview was or, and, and Drew was really and this is where Christine was in, incredibly helpful to have have on board uh, this project is really tell us you know her story and, and what is actually really a common story with patients is that they come in they got the gap the guideline care she she had sciatica um, and she got the the care that 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 all the guidelines are saying that they should get better at she didn't get better she went to the next physio and then she went to the next physio and the next next person and they all kept doing the guideline care and the things that weren't working for you the things that weren't helping and so she was very much slipping through the cracks and if we're thinking about evidence-based care evidence-based care is supposed to be you know the care that is providing really best bang for your buck what is going to be the thing that evidence tells us is going to be the most helpful and cause the least harm and for her she was supposedly getting it but it wasn't helping so how can we start to um when we, we're looking at these guidelines that are set up using these RCTs and it's about saying what is the most cost-effective care, what is the thing that, that produces the greatest benefit, we, we're starting to understand why we need those other studies. We're starting to understand that, that Christine is a case that's saying, well, look, you know, the guideline created, gave us a map of the area that, of what we have to follow. Um, the you know, but then the patient presents the actual terrain. When we get down on the ground with the patient, we see that that things aren't exactly like the map and that the idea is that what we're supposed to be doing is using our expertise, our clinical experience, as well as our knowledge of the map and our knowledge of the terrain to actually then help them plot a course to where they want to go as well. And that's probably the most evidence-based way to approach things. Um, I always keep thinking about the Tom Goom um, quote where he said we're using evidence-based medicine to, or something like this, we're using evidence-based medicine to throw bricks at each other, not to actually build a wall. And that's what we're talking about here is we're saying, look, this is a great set of studies. And, and Roger was, you know, laboured this point, you know, cause health, uh, you know, has potentially being accused of not being evidence-based because it's, it's saying that, well, you know, challenging this framework in evidence-based medicine and saying, well, look, you know, at the, the RCT, potentially it's not the gold standard we once thought it was. And by that comment, it's not saying that it's, that we're trying to say, you know, let anything come go through. If anything, you know, the, the lessons that we're learning from cause health apply more to pseudoscience than it does to actual science. So it's not opening this floodgates of letting all the pseudoscience and crap come through. It's just critiquing and saying, well, look, there's some incredible benefits from the way that we're this framework and this idea of bias and reducing confounding, but we've also got to be aware of the downsides of that approach um, and how it is creating an artificial setting. And so, as we discussed with Christine, a, a fantastic example of this is that we, we have to get better at, at being more nuanced and we have to get better at understanding patients and they present in a larger context with a lot of other factors going on, which is going to confound those results that we get from the RCT. And a really good evidence-based medicine practitioner is going to be able to work with that nuance, understand the principles and the ideas and the major concepts that the research is providing us. And then in the absence of personalized or more sort of smaller scale studies with more personalized recommendations or recommendations that we can apply to subgroups or subpopulations, 
um, we then have to be able to work with principles, understanding a wider body of literature and understanding what it's saying to us and how we can actually then follow that through. So we're thinking about principles like, you know, a big part of our, our process is always going to be focusing on the patient goals, individualising care, you know, making sure that we're communicating effectively because when we communicate effectively, you know, and show compassion and empathy, we see, um, you know, across all musculoskeletal conditions or any all conditions overall, pain levels go down, providing good education to patients. Um, working, you know, a lot of the, the pain science literature is turning, telling us, you know, if we work to calm things down and then build them back up, graduated exposure, that seems to be a really good principle that's holding true, um, building people back up um, rather than just calming them down or rather than just loading them from the get-go. These are some really good principles that we can use that seem to underpin a lot of what we're finding in these studies and that's, that is an evidence-based approach. That is definitely a way we can practice and build, build from there in the absence of evidence. And so probably the biggest conclusion that I have um, from, from this interview and from this, um, this series uh, is probably going to be the fact that really to be evidence-based medicine practitioners, we need to change our perspective that on, on medicine. And, and the common perspective is that medicine and research has a lot of the answers or has all the answers. Um, or, or it can give us the answer when really, you know, we're having a repeatability crisis. We're having a crisis of where we, study designs aren't producing the results that we think they're producing. Um, we're having, uh, you know, huge blank spots when it comes to understanding care. Maybe our goal or maybe the idea that we should take into a lot of this is the fact that medicine maybe doesn't have all the answers. Maybe, you know, research is not able to give us the answers that we want and we are going to be working in the dark. And what that kind of perspective change does is it puts us on, puts us in a point where we become more sceptical. We can't become more critical. We're no longer idea or our idea is, is not about, yeah, throwing just the brick at each other and going, yeah, this is the brick and it tells us exactly what's happening and, you know, take this because I'm, you know, because this is right. It's more of a case of, well, how does this brick, this, this bit of information that we've got, fit in our wider network and it might not fit perfectly, but how does it fit and how we can best use that? And if we're skeptical and we're constantly critical, critically thinking, and we're not just diving in and saying, this says this, therefore it has the answers. The RCT told us this, therefore this is the answer. Maybe that's the better way that we need to approach evidence. Um, and I think that's the sort of approach that I've been using in my, my clinic. Critical, being always being critical, always sort of thinking things through and just having a, a high level of skepticism about, about claims.